let's uh, go ahead and begin, get our hearts and our minds prepared for worship. I want to read from the Gospel of John for our, our call to worship in light of uh, recent events and uh, of course, you know, one of the big topics right now is the decision that was passed down from the Supreme Court this week. Um, and in light of some things that I've heard said by Christians, uh, one of the things that struck me the, the, the most was too many Christians saying this, you know, we don't have to worry because we know that Jesus wins in the end. So I wanted to read this from John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So speaking of the crucifixion, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, the same event, the cross. And He continues, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Or some manuscripts say in it. That is in the cross. In light of whatever happens in this nation, this infant nation, a lot of Christians are still of the mindset that America is the greatest planet in the universe. And America is not the greatest planet in the universe. And America is a young country on a planet. One of hundreds of countries. We are not the end-all, be-all of all that God has ever done or will ever do. And the, 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 the good news that we look forward to or that we believe in is not, hey, cheer up, Christians. Jesus wins in the end. The good news is He's already won. He triumphed at the cross. He already sits as the victor. We're going to talk about this in the sermon and in the songs. It doesn't matter what the Supreme Court says or doesn't say or what happens in the world. All of our action and all of our beliefs flow from the fact that He's already won. And we've, we've even changed the lyric to one of our songs in A Mighty Fortress. It's no longer... He must win the battle. It is He has won the battle. He's already won. So let's be joyful, let's be excited, and let's worship our God who has already won the victory. If you have a Bible, please take it out and turn with me to 
Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and we are going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we're going to skip over to verses 18 through 23. We've already spent uh, several weeks on verses 10 through 17 back months ago, and so uh, now we're going to begin to look at these parables. We talked uh, for several weeks about the purpose of the parables, now we begin to look at the parables themselves. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about Him so that He got into a boat and sat down and the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since there was no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a little while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, Immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This is God's Word. Now as we go to the Lord in prayer, we're going to pray for the Darzi people of Pakistan, an unreached people group. 360,000 people, again, the majority of them are Islamic. They are known as mostly tailors. They are becoming more and more open to hearing um, especially open to conversations uh, regarding business. And um, so we need to pray that perhaps people um, with business-mindedness uh, but also uh, gospel focus would maybe be able to go to these people and share the gospel with them. One of the main um, barriers with these people is that there are many different languages used in this one people group. And so it's probably going to take different people to go and learn different languages to plant many different churches for one people group. And so let's pray uh, that God would raise up um, missionaries to go to these people, the Darzi people of Pakistan. And then for our persecuted brothers and sisters, let's pray for those in Kazakhstan. In Kazakhstan, the government has a, a rule over the people. And so, unregistered religious activity, any type of private religious education, and any type of proselytism is illegal, as well as any type of spreading of religious literature is illegal. And Voice of the Martyrs, uh, where I get a lot of this information, they have um, people there who are trying to spread Christian literature. We, we have all come to the faith and are growing because of Christian literature. Um, we have 
tracts and things in the back that you can have and spread because of Christian literature. We take these things for granted. It's illegal. They can go to jail, be harassed, have their things taken if they spread Christian literature. So let's pray for the Christians in Kazakhstan and then the Darzi people of Pakistan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we come to you and we are asking that you would meet with us here. We pray that you would bless your word and, and bless our time as we, we submit ourselves to your word. And Lord, I know that one of the main things on all of our hearts and minds right, right now is our, our nation. And we do ask and pray like we often do that you would bless our nation, that you would intervene in the actions of our nation and the governments of our nation and the, the lives of the, the people of our nation. Lord, there are many people, many people in our nation who are now going to sleep at nighttime, living in homes, feeling now vindicated, feeling like their lifestyle is now approved, that it's, that it's okay now. Um, and there are even people who profess to be Christians who are giving their okay and their thumbs up to, to homosexual activity, all because the Supreme Court has said that it's, that it's appropriate for same-sex couples to be married, that, that states should, should recognize these marriages and approve of them. Father, we, we know that your word tells us something contrary to this, that in reality, being given over to sin and, and public um, accommodation of sin is a sign of judgment. Lord, a, a clear sign of your judgment is that you give us over to our sin, that you, you cease to intervene. And Lord, we come to you as a people that are gathered here this morning who are all the fruit of your intervention. Lord, you have spoken into our lives. Lord, if it were not for your grace and your mercy, we would be on the path of thinking we have been vindicated, that we are okay, that you approve of our lifestyle because you had not stepped in. But Lord, you have intervened. You have stopped us in our tracks and you have called us unto yourself. And so I pray, Lord, that as we look at our nation and as we have to engage in conversations and as we perhaps even meet people and then have friends and family members who are, are persuaded differently than we are. Lord, we pray that you would help us to remember first and foremost, the only reason we believe differently is because you have intervened in our pathway. Lord, we were destined for destruction and you stepped in. We were all proverbially headed toward Damascus. And you came down and you opened up our eyes to see our own sin and the glory of Jesus. And so help us to keep this in the forefront of our minds at all times, to remember the grace that we have been shown, the mercy that we have been shown, the love that we have been shown. But at the same time, Father, help us to be bold. Help us to hold on to the truth. As your word says, help us to speak the truth in love. And to remember that love does not mean full acceptance of everything. But sometimes love means pointing out wrong and calling people to repentance and faith. Lord, again, help us as individuals, help us as families, help us as a church to stand boldly against opposition, to stand in the place of victory. Lord, we, we are not afraid of the world. Because we know Jesus has already overcome the world. The world may hate us, but that's only because it hated Him first. And we will be persecuted, but that's only because of Him. It's only because of our testimony concerning Christ. And so help us to be bold. Lord, I pray that You would come and bless the time as we, we look at Your Word. Lord, I pray that You would uh, take care of... Uh, Jeremy's grandfather and, and the issues that are going on there, comfort them and, and help them, give them wisdom as they seek to uh, work out some details there, be with the Hopkins as they travel, Lord, um, many different issues 
going on within our own church family. Watch over us. Protect us. Keep us safe. Um, watch over our family members. Um, again, as we look to your word, we're reminded your kingdom has been established. You have triumphed. And so these, these issues that we face are only to be viewed in light of victory. So help us to remember that. Bless this time. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend and understand, hearts to receive what you've written in your word. Lord, I pray that you would teach us all something. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So my intention today is to set the stage for this parable. I don't want to give a full-on exegesis. We're going to spend several weeks, um, at least three more weeks, just looking at this parable and understanding it. And, and as we get into this uh, message today, you'll, you'll understand why. But I just want to set the stage today. I want to establish some, some groundwork. I want to build the scaffolding, so to speak, around this parable so that we can then begin stand on this scaffolding and walk around it and look at it and get a good angle as to what's happening here. Um, there is a lot of talk in our culture today about quote unquote kingdom work, kingdom efforts. Um, I'm a part of a group of pastors that meets once a month that's a part of a nationwide group. And our focus every month, and the focus of this network is kingdom collaboration, working together to advance the kingdom. And we should be clear that the church is here to that end. That's why we are here, is to see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ, they're all synonymous, to see that kingdom advance or expand or grow, or whatever word you want to use there, we want to see it move forward. But there is also, and, and we've discussed this before, it's, it's been a long time since we've been in Matthew, so if, if a lot of this is review, um, maybe it's just for me. But there's also a lot of false notions about what the kingdom is, therefore there are false notions about what kingdom work is. Some people think, well, as long as you're doing some sort of social justice work, that's kingdom work. You're, you're helping the poor. You're digging wells. You're giving out bottles of water. You're buying somebody's gas. You're giving children Christmas presents because if they don't have presents, they won't get Christmas this year. And if you're doing some of those things, then that's kingdom work. A lot of people are under the impression that these are kingdom efforts, that these expand the kingdom when you do them. Others think that kingdom work is literally political domination. And so they, they believe that to advance the kingdom, our priority should be fighting and waging within the wars of political parties. Are you a Democrat? Are you a Republican? Are you in the Tea Party or the, the GOP? They know all of the language and, and they're all about legislating morality, that we need to pass the laws to legislate the morality so that the kingdom can then advance. Others, when you talk about the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of Christ, or the kingdom of heaven, they only think of a literal kingdom where Jesus will sit on a literal throne inside of a newly built temple in Jerusalem for 1,000 years on this earth. That's what they picture. And so even within that group, you have differing opinions. Will that kingdom come slowly onto the scene and then Christ comes? Will His kingdom advance slower and slower and slower and then He appears? Or will it just fall out of the sky? Everything gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse until He comes back and establishes His kingdom. All of these things... Different people think of when they think of the kingdom of God. Now, as in all matters of theology, there's always, there is a rule. Whenever it comes to these things, 
we have to ask ourselves first and foremost, what has God said on the subject? Or what has Jesus said? What what does God's Word tell us about the subject? Especially in light of the Supreme Court ruling, in spite of recent events, we, we watch the news, we see what's going on around the world, we don't look at newspapers or blogs and, and, and look at a globe or look at a map or look at history and look at patterns of history or try to predict the future or simply think about what we hope to be the case and then say, this is what's going on in light of Christ's reign on the earth. Because, like I said, what's going on in our measly nations around the world Um, they may play into what Christ is doing right now. They most surely do. But in the grand scheme of things, we just see tiny little pictures, little little glimpses. We get to see 60 or 70 years, and then we're gone. So we don't do this. We come to God's Word that has always been relevant and will always be relevant, and we say, we, we study what Christ Himself has said on the subject. And what He has said explains it. No matter what it looks like. Does it look like things are getting worse? Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, they're getting better. Maybe in the grand scheme of things, they are getting worse. We have to look at what Christ has said. And so that's what we're going to do as we begin to look at these parables in Matthew chapter 13 as we're talking about the kingdom and how it works and how it grows and and these various things. So, the first thing that I want to look at in, in setting the groundwork for this parable is the importance of this particular parable. The context, if you'll remember, in chapters 11 and 12, we saw these different glimpses of questioning and challenging and opposition to Jesus and to His message. And, and what... I believe would be in opposition to the kingdom of heaven, to His authority. Jesus came to establish the kingdom. And so these, these challenges and this opposition is kingdom opposition. And most of that, I believe, was based on a misunderstanding of what the kingdom is. They believed that the Messiah was going to come and set up a literal kingdom on the earth and reinstate Israel to a place of prominence. And when Jesus comes and doesn't do that, it throws everyone into a fit. And, and, and they, they want Him to be gone because in their minds, He's preaching a false gospel, a false kingdom. And so all of the parables in chapter 13 are a way for Jesus to respond by saying, no, 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 you don't understand. Let me explain to you the true nature of God's kingdom. Now, whether these, all of these parables came immediately after all of the opposition, or whether Matthew just put these things in juxtaposition in his gospel so that we would read it this way, that's the way it's laid out. Here's the opposition. We've rejected the kingdom. And then Jesus comes back to respond, no, let me explain to you what the kingdom really is. Now, specific to this parable, the parable that it's often called the parable of the sower, Mark's gospel says, includes a statement from Jesus that is very, very important. In Mark chapter 4, verse 13, we read this. He said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? What Jesus is making clear is this parable is of absolute necessity in understanding all of the parables. So if we spend six months studying this parable, but we leave it wrongly informed, then we will approach the rest of the parables uninformed. We won't know what we're talking about. If we get this parable wrong, we get all of the parables wrong. That should impress on us a weightiness concerning this parable and and bring to our minds a question, how in the world can we be certain that we get this parable right? All of us have been in conversations where we talk to somebody about Scripture and they say, well, that's just your interpretation. So if Jesus says this parable is primary in understanding all of the kingdom parables, 
how are we going to know that we've interpreted it properly? And the good news, of course, is in verses 18 through 23, Jesus interprets it for us. He tells us exactly what it means. So there's very little interpretive work for us to do. We simply have to apply it to where we are and how this might look in our lives. So, as we study this today and for the next several weeks, keep your Bibles open so that you can see verses 1 through 9 and verses 18 through 23 because we're going to be going back and forth and and connecting the dots between the parable Jesus has given, the story, and the teaching that this story has come and been thrown alongside. Remember, a parable is a story that comes alongside a teaching. So we have the teaching and we have the parable alongside it. And we're also going to go to the other gospel accounts and pull little phrases and words from them to help us understand what is being taught here. So this parable is absolutely crucial in understanding everything else in chapter 13. Second thing that I want us to look at, and this will take a lot of our time, is the characters of this parable, the, the, the players. Who's in this parable? And, and what, what roles do they play? In verse 3, it begins the parable by saying, a sower went out to sow. A sower went out to sow. Who's the sower? Well, in, in the explanation of the parable, Jesus doesn't tell us specifically who the sower is. He just says, when anyone hears the word, he skips over the, the title of the sower. But, in verse 37 of chapter 13, we read, the one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, assuming that there is continuity between the parable of the sower and the parable of the weeds, which I think is appropriate, the sower in the immediate context is the Son of Man, Jesus. And I'll, I'll, I'll pull more out of that towards the end. Jesus is the initial sower. The next character we see in verse 4, and as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path. So the next character is the seeds. What is the seed? We'll look over at the explanation. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. So the seed is the word of the kingdom or the word about the kingdom. Now in Mark 4.14, he phrases it, the sower sows the word. And in Luke 8.11, we have the most explicit explanation of the seed. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. So there you have it, the seed that the Son of Man is sowing is the Word of God. So the Word of the Kingdom, or the Word about the Kingdom, is the Word, is the Word of God. Now, listen to these passages of Scripture. Again, assuming that there is continuity between these parables, and assuming that Jesus is the sower, listen to Matthew 4.23. And He went out throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom. That's Jesus. Matthew 9.35, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and, and various things, Jesus went out, went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Matthew 24.14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I believe that we can assume that this is also a synonymous term. So, again, the seed that's being scattered is the word of the kingdom, the word about the kingdom. It is the word. It is the word of God. It is the gospel of the kingdom. They're all synonymous. The good news that the kingdom has come, this is what's being sown. This is what's being scattered or proclaimed. The next character that we see is the soils. The soils, verse 4, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. It's one soil, it's a path. Verse 5, other seeds fell on rocky ground. So there's another soil. Verse 7, other seeds fell among thorns. 
There's the thorny soil. And then verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil. So we have these various soils. In my Bible, it says the parable of the sower. Most agree that this should actually be called the parable of the soils. The focus of this parable is the soils, not the sower. So we have the path, we have the rocky ground, we have the thorny soil, we have the good soil. What are these soils? Well, when we again hop over to the explanation, Jesus says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, in verse 19, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So the soil is the heart. In Mark 4.15, it's phrased, the word that is sown in them. And in Luke 8.12, the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So the heart, the soil is the heart. It is the inner man, it is the, the seat of the intellect and the will and the emotions and the personhood. So the, the different kinds of soils are different kinds of hearts or different receptivities of the human heart. So, this parable is primary in understanding the rest of these parables. They all focus, we studied this back months ago, they all focus on the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, if we want to know anything about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, then we must understand this parable. This parable lays out our, our red carpet into understanding very much of what we need to know about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. So then the question that comes to mind at this point is, without even delving into the parable, we haven't applied it. All we've looked at is, looked at is the, the characters or are the characters and how Jesus connects the dots and explains the different characters. What do we already see is a main theme? Concerning the kingdom. Well, it's obvious. A main theme of the kingdom of God, if we are going to understand anything about the kingdom of God, is the proclamation of the word of God and the hearts of individuals as it receives that word. Absolutely primary to kingdom work. Now this is huge. This is a really big deal for us, I, I hope. I'm not sure, but I would, I would hope and I would imagine that if somebody cornered you out somewhere and they said, just tell me, what is it about that little brick building with that sign, with that funny church name that you go to, what is it about that that keeps you there? What is it about that church that makes you want to be there, that, that drives what you're doing? Among other things, I think what most of you would say, I hope, is that you, I hope what you would say was, that church believes in the proclamation of the Word of God. Everything that we do is based on the Word of God. As a matter of fact, we don't even do anything that we can't find in the Word of God. It... The whole church is so simple because all we do is read the Bible and study the Scriptures and do what the Bible teaches because we believe that God's Word is sufficient for every single thing in church life and therefore if God has not put it in His Word, it's not necessary. I hope you all see that as central to church life. I hope you know that my passion is to help people know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent by teaching and preaching the Word of God. That's, that's, that's all I want to do. I've already told Christy on my tombstone, put my name, my birthday, my death day, and a little snippet from Ezekiel 37, 7. I prophesied as I was commanded. What more can there be than to just say, I told people what God said. Because that's what, that's what we're here for. This is, this is life. To the church, this is life to God's people. And so, this should be important to us. In Acts chapter 17, we find out that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonian Christians because, and this is what made them more noble, when Paul preached to them, they received the word with joy, 
but they also examined everything he said according to the word of God to see if it was so. Apostle Paul comes to them and they say, man, this is great news, Paul, so let's go check it and make sure you're really right and we'll come back to you. And I hope, and that's my prayer. I want a church of Berean Christians that say we love our pastor and, and we like preaching the word, but if he's wrong, we're going to know it because we're so in the word. We're, we're checking everything that he's saying with the word. So, whenever I come to a parable that Jesus says is absolutely primary to understanding the kingdom of God and... I see that absolutely primary to understanding the kingdom of God is the proclamation of the word of God. And I also see that my passion and the passion of our church is the proclamation of the word of God. I get excited. See, we are, we're an infant church. We have so much to learn and so many areas to grow. There, there are so many things that we have no clue about. But I do know that if we keep the Word of God central and the proclamation of the Word of God primary, that, that God will bless that. And he will, he, will, he will work out the rest as we go. There are many things that we might be doing wrong, but as I look at this and I see that the Word of the Kingdom is primary and our mission is to advance the Kingdom, these things are beginning to line up. I say, well, we're doing at least one thing right. We've got one thing that's at least beginning to get on the tracks. And so, that excited me. And I hope it excites you. And I want to spend the rest of our time looking at four words out of verse 19. When anyone hears, and these are the four words, the word of the kingdom. Is that five words? One, two, three, four, five. Five words. My passion is preaching, not mathematics. The word of the kingdom. What is the kingdom? We've talked about this, so this might be review. But we, we see, as a church, we have a mission. And if we don't constantly revisit what it is that we're doing and why we're here, we will become stagnant. It's really easy for us to become comfortable to just come and, and receive preaching and enjoy it and go home. Maybe do our small group Bible studies and go home. It's really easy for me to work and study and come and deliver the sermon and go home and become stagnant in that and be okay with that, but we can't. We have to be on mission, and so we must understand what the kingdom is. Now, the Bible gives no clear definition. The Bible doesn't say, now here's what I mean when I say the kingdom. So we have to kind of break it down and ask several questions and, and talk about a kingdom. We know that a kingdom has a king. Every kingdom has a king. And the king of this kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our king. In Acts 2.32, we read of Jesus being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. Notice, being. It's already a fact. At the time of Peter's preaching, He's already exalted. He's already there at the right hand of the Father. In Psalm 110.1 we read, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So not only is it already a present reality that Christ rules and reigns at the right hand of the Father, but it will continue to be a reality as all of the enemies of Christ are put under His feet. He is King. And Philippians 2.9 says, God the Father, or says, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God the Father has placed Jesus in this position of authority as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So the king of our kingdom is Jesus. Every kingdom has a king. Our king is Jesus. Every kingdom has dominion has dominion, that is the, the territory of sovereign rule, the boundaries. So the question now becomes, where does Christ rule? And this is where it gets kind of tricky. Hebrews 2.8 says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, 
we do not yet see everything in subjection to Him. So, we know that everything is under the rule of Christ. There's nothing outside of His reign, but we don't yet see that. Many Christians look at the Supreme Court and we say, yeah, but one day Christ is going to reign over them. No, He already reigns. We just don't see how it works. So, are we to assume, well, the kingdom of God is everything? I don't, I don't think so. In Romans 14, 17, we read this. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not the main point of that text, but I believe a side point that we learn there is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of physical things, of just what you do. It is, a, it is of a spiritual nature. And then John 18, 36 Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. So His kingdom is not of this world. It's not physical, it's spiritual. Although everything is under His feet. So the question is, where can we see Christ ruling and reigning now? Where does He rule and reign now? And the answer, I believe, we learn from Scripture is, is Christ reigns in the hearts of His people. This is the dominion. This is the soils. Or the, the, the good soil specifically. He rules in our hearts. He comes in and He takes over as Lord. There's no, there's no such thing as Christ being Savior and not Lord. And so Christ rules His dominion. Although He does rule over all things, He's still bringing His enemies under His subjection Right now, those who are under His subjection are His people, and He rules in their hearts. And so that brings up the next thing. Every kingdom has subjects, has citizens. The citizens of the kingdom of God are those who have been born again, the people of God from every tribe and nation and tongue on earth. Every kingdom has a code of ethics. Every kingdom has a code of morality, a law. So how do we as citizens of this kingdom know how our lives are to be governed. Where do we go to learn how to love and obey God? Well, we know that we go to the God's Word in the Bible alone. So the essence of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is this. It is the sovereign rule of God over the hearts of His people through His Word. The sovereign rule of God over the hearts of His people through His Word. That is the kingdom. So what is the Word? What is the Word of this kingdom? What is the Word about this kingdom? Well, the Word, as we've already saw, is synonymous or, or is analogous to the seeds. The Word is the Word of God. It is the, the Scriptures. The Word is the full revelation of God in the the Old and New Testaments of the Bible. Now, we have a benefit because we are at a place in history where we can use the whole canon of Scripture, all 66 books, and connect it all to the redemptive plan of God. We can use all of the Bible to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Whereas some people might think, oh, well, the gospel, that's in the New Testament. And the Old Testament, well, that's what God was doing with the Jews. And we'd say, no, all of the Bible comes together to teach us about the gospel. The Word of God is ultimately all the gospel. It is the good news of what God has done in Christ to save His people from their sins and reconcile them to Himself. So when we talk about proclaiming the Word of the kingdom or the gospel of the kingdom, it's not just moral stories about Jonah and the whale, or, or Noah's ark, or David and Goliath. Now those will fit in there, but it's not just that. It's not just laws and commands. It's not just ethics and worldview. It's not proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom to say, I disagree with that law. I disagree with that judge. Here's how I believe. That's not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom comes when we take those various things and we follow the scarlet thread to the cross, and we teach people the way of salvation by way of those stories. 
how God has rescued His people in Christ from judgment and why our worldview is different. We believe that God has created people differently and that Christ has come to rescue His people, that the law shows us our sin and our need for a Savior. So the gospel of the kingdom is not just morality. It's not just picking one little piece of the Bible. It is taking all of the Bible and explaining the way of salvation. So we talk about the gospel, the word. How does that fit into the word about the kingdom then? In other words, what does the gospel have to do with the kingdom or this kingdom language? Usually when we proclaim the gospel, we don't proclaim the gospel using kingdom language. We honestly most often proclaim the gospel using very humanistic selfish language do you trust Jesus to save you from your sins so that you don't have to go to heaven we don't use kingdom language how does this gospel fit into this kingdom mindset well the gospel of the kingdom reveals to us our our biggest problem we are by nature all people are by nature a law unto ourselves, or we want to be a law unto ourselves. We hate submission. We hate rule. We want to do every man what is right in his own eyes. We're born that way. We want to be our own God, our own king. And so Jesus comes on the scene, John the Baptist preceding him and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, not repent for the democracy of heaven is at hand. They didn't say repent for the representative republic of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom is at hand. And kingdoms are not democracies. They are monarchies. A kingdom has a king. See, we are so used to wanting to be represented. You know, no taxation without representation. My vote counts. I want to be heard. That's not how a kingdom works. A kingdom has a king. And a king requires Submission. A king demands respect. A king demands honor. A king demands obedience. And so the message of the gospel of the kingdom is you have lived your whole life as a law to yourself, seeking to do only what was right in your own eyes, but there is a new king in town. Jesus Christ has come, has lived a perfect life under the law of God, was crucified, was raised again on the third day, is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all things, and He demands, He commands you to repent and bow your knees before Him, the King. That's the word of the kingdom. You must submit to the King. When we share the gospel, we are not making requests. Well, please receive Jesus. Please do this. No, we are telling people, He is King. You must repent and believe before it's too late. Submit to the King. So, in light of this kingdom, in light of this Word, in light of the Gospel, in light of the fact that our primary duty as Christians and as a church is to see the kingdom grow, what does kingdom ministry look like for a church like ours? If we are to see this kingdom grow, but we know that the kingdom is centered on the proclamation of the word, what does it look like? And I think this is important. I think I, personally, I feel like our church is beginning to stagnate. And so we need to think about what does it look like for our church to minister? Well, first, we need to look at the individual. What does it look like for the individual to be involved in kingdom work? And this is not exhaustive, this is just real quick. I will beat this dead horse until I'm dead. We're going to say, I hear this all the time. This is because I know from experience that when God grips you and you meet with God over His Word, you will never be the same. When that begins to happen, you will commune with God and every aspect of your life will change. So it begins as an individual believer, on your knees, in prayer, over God's Word, daily Bible study, studying to know God. It will not happen every day. It will not come about every day that you have this great spiritual experience where the Spirit pours out 
His love on you and you just you, you meet with God and you know it and He, and he, he grips you and, and wraps you up and wrestles you with Scripture. It's not going to happen every day, but it only takes one time for you to have an experience with God for you to get up every single day for the rest of your life looking for it again. And it'll happen from time to time. But if you'll do it, He will meet with you and you will commune with God. And once you begin to commune with God, everything in your world will change. Now this doesn't mean mass quantities of Scripture. I've got to get up and read 12 chapters a day so I can meet God. No, that's not what it means. Sometimes you'll just begin reading until you meet with God and He says, stop and hang out here. Meet with me here. It means deep quality study and prayer over the text of Scripture. Pray Ask God to speak with you and read His Word. When you read His Word, realize this is God speaking to me. Don't read the Bible and think about the Supreme Court. Don't read the Bible and think about your nation. Don't read the Bible and think about other people. Read the Bible and hear, see the words and say, this is God speaking to me. What is He saying? I hear you, God. Speak to me. Tell me something. I want to commune with you. Don't think of others. Read Scripture as God speaking to you. And after you've read, before and after you've read, talk back. Commune. Pray and beg and plead with Him to meet with you over His Word. When individual Christians begin to do that, then we move to the family. The family will begin to look different. We've covered this a lot lately, so just really quickly. Kingdom work inside the family looks like husbands and fathers leading in daily family worship and Bible study every day. Husbands and fathers being faithful to catechize wives and children in the home. When it gets a grip on us as individuals, as husband, as father, as child, whoever, then it will be no problem for us to come together and, and discuss that and, and, and do that together. And then we move to the church. Again, we've we talked about this in, in a previous series. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we read, He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body. Now when I read that, it raises the question, who is in the ministry? Who's in the ministry? Raise your hand if you're in the ministry based on Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. Everybody's hand should be up. Every Christian's hand should be up at this point in time as I speak right now. All of the hands in the room of the Christian people are up because we are all in the ministry. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So how is the body built? Well, the body is built whenever the saints equipped with the Word do the ministry of the church. So as you learn, as you grow, as you get in the Word and you're gripped, your hearts will begin to stir for ministries in the community, here, locally, around the world. Your heart will begin to grip you. Your, your spiritual giftedness will begin to surface and God will begin to... To tell you, this is what you're going to do. This is how I want to use you. And that begins to work itself out in the church. You come to somebody and say, I want to do this. We say, fine, let's do it. And, and the church begins to grow in, and the body is built up. But remember, again, all kingdom work is word work. All kingdom work is word-centered. It is word-saturated. It is word-driven work. Church life. Kingdom life, what we're doing here, this is not a preaching show. Many churches are that. There are churches that pack out buildings with great preachers. But it's viewed as a preaching show. We just go and watch the show. That I don't want that. I'm not here for my health. I'm not doing this for my health. And I'm not just here to deliver to you my findings for the week. I am here to deliver to you the Word of God the seed, the gospel of the kingdom, so that you can be fed, so that you will then grow, so that this church will be strengthened and built, and the kingdom advanced through your ministry. 
Your ministry, not mine. I have my ministry. I'm here. Look, I'm in my ministry here. I've got it. I'm equipping you to do your ministry. So the question that you should be asking as believers is, what is my ministry? So it begins as individuals. It begins with individuals and moves to the family and then to the church. If you're not personally meeting with God, Sundays are going to be of little use. I mean, absolutely. I mean, even something as simple as spending five minutes before the service, just preparing your own heart, is massive. But if you're not personally meeting with God, Sundays will be of little use. If your family is not personally meeting with God, Sundays are going to be of little use. Again, that just, that just makes it into a preaching show, a gathering. That's not what we're doing. So, who's going to be the sowers? The Word must be sown. And like I said, it seems clear here that the sower is Jesus, the Son of Man. But are we to assume that when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father that the proclamation of the Word and the sowing of the Word ceased and the kingdom can't grow anymore? Of course not. We don't believe that. In John 17, 8, Jesus prayed to the Father, I have given them the words that you gave me and they received them. In John 14, 26, Jesus speaking to His disciples says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. So Jesus gave the Word to the disciples, the apostles. And the Holy Spirit comes to the apostles and reminds them of everything Jesus said. They teach it. They preach it. They write it down. We have it. The inspiration of the New Testament Scriptures. The apostles carried on the Word after Christ ascended. They wrote it down. We continue to scatter the Word as we take the Scriptures and we preach and we teach and we learn and we grow from them. So all subsequent believers will continue to scatter the Word. And if we will continue to scatter the Word, we are sowers. We are all sowers of the Word. So If the kingdom of God is to grow, if it is to expand, if it is to, to advance, it is only going to happen as the Word goes forth. The Gospel of the Kingdom. Not social justice. That can come alongside it. And it should. It should. We should do good things for people to help people. But if we only do that and there's no Gospel with it, it doesn't have anything to do with God's Kingdom. Any group on earth can do nice things for people. But only the church has been called to take the Gospel to the nations. And this will happen as we, as our lives are, are consumed with the Word of God. As the Word of God begins to pervade us, this ministry will happen. So, as we begin to study chapter 13 and all these parables, and especially this parable, we need to understand what God's Word requires of us. What we're going to see in this parable specifically Number one, we're going to learn, am I truly a citizen of this kingdom? As we study these soils, we're going to find out, do I have one of the, the bad soils or do I have a good soil? And then we're going to also be prepared on what to expect as we go out and sow the Word. We're also going to learn that Satan vehemently desires to overthrow this kingdom and all of our work and he will do everything in his power to thwart the work that we're doing. If we are going to engage in kingdom work, we are signing up for spiritual warfare and battle. And we'll also learn that if you are truly a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you will seek to see that kingdom manifested in your life and in the lives of others more than anything else. That will be your priority. It will be as if you found a pearl in a field and you sold everything you had just to own it. It will become a top priority. We'll also see that this kingdom is already waging war from a position of victory. And that those outside the kingdom will suffer for all of eternity and many of them will have thought for their entire earthly lives that they were a part of the kingdom. And they didn't know that they were actually tares among the wheat. 
So in closing, God's kingdom is glorious. Christ's kingdom is glorious. His reign is a present reality. And if you're a Christian, that should bring you great joy. But if you're not a Christian, that should send a shock down into your soul and drive you to your knees before the king before it's too late. Let's pray.